Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody, welcome back. This is DJ Hillier, and you are listening to episode 200 of the MyFit Podcast. This week on the show, I'm honored to chat with national best-selling author and keynote speaker, Nir Eyal. Nir started his career teaching behavioral design at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. He now writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business at nearandfar.com. His 2014 book titled Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products is a Wall Street Journal bestseller and also won Marketing Book of the Year. Since 2014, he's come out with a new book titled Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. I picked up this book and absolutely loved it. I really wanted to get him on the show to dive in deeper to some of the topics on not getting distracted. Some of the first things we got into were, what does it mean to live an indistractable life? As you can tell, that word is made up. It's Nier's word, so he has his own definition of it, and it kind of sets the table for the rest of the conversation. After that, we talked about how to master internal and external triggers. I think a lot of us know the external triggers, what he calls the, the rings, pings, and dings that go off on emails or alerts. But some of the bigger things we need to focus on are the internal triggers. Very fascinating stuff. After that, we talked about how to make time for traction. We talked about what it means to hack back external triggers. Then we talked about the three types of packs you can make to help boost traction. Let me close down by talking talking about reimagining tasks to increase productivity. There's a lot in this conversation, and there's even more in the book. I highly recommend it. If you guys found this show and this uh, conversation valuable, please be sure to leave a rating, review, and share it on your social medias. Your five-star feedback helps the show grow and also helps to bring on more amazing guests like Nier. Also, if you want to learn more from Nier, he sent over a bunch of links uh, that I would put in the show notes. If you guys are looking to get some more content or articles or some of the to-do list, the scheduling, all the stuff that he goes into today, the links are over in the show notes. So be sure to go check that out. All right, without further ado, let's get into the living an indistractable life with Nier Eyal. Let's go. The MyFit Podcast is brought to you by Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. With none of the junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, and no BS. 
Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. And it makes sense. You lose both water and sodium when you sweat. So both need to be replaced to prevent things like muscle cramps, headaches, and energy dips. There are several flavors to choose from. My favorite is the citrus salt, which is how I start every single day. And as listeners of the MyFit podcast, you can now receive a free element sample pack with any order by using the link www.drinkelement.com forward slash MyFit. Again, that's www.drinkelement.com forward slash M-I-F-I-T. Go get yours now. Nir, welcome to the MyFit podcast, man. I'm so stoked to have you on today. Thanks, DJ. Great to be here. Let's dive in, man. I want to start right away. How do you define an indistractable life? What's the definition? Yeah, so it's a word I made up so I can define it any way I want. <laughs> and so uh, I would say that uh, being indistractable means that you are as honest with yourself as you are with others. That, you know, none of us want to be called liars. To be called a liar is a, is a huge put down. And most of us, I think, are pretty honest to the people we love in our life. We're, you know, to most people, to we're, we're, we want to be upstanding and, and make sure that people know that our word is good. But with ourselves, somehow, we lie to ourselves all the time. Or I should say, I used to lie to myself all the time. I would, and maybe this resonates with other people. I would say I'm going to exercise. Eh, maybe I didn't. Maybe I'll skip today. I would say I'm going to eat right. Eh, maybe not so much. Uh, I would say I'm going to get to work on that big project first thing in the morning. And yet, you know what? I get to work and now I start checking email and I start checking the news and Slack channels and I do everything but the thing I said I was going to do. And that is the, the characteristic of not only a distractible person, it's a characteristic of a low performer. That when you look at high performers, high performers across the board, doesn't matter what industry, what field, what profession, these are people who do what they say they're going to do. They are as honest with themselves as they are with others. Now, what being indistractable does not mean, it doesn't mean you never get distracted, okay? Everyone gets distracted from time to time. I wrote the book Indistractable and I still get distracted from time to time. But the difference is that an indistractable person knows why they got distracted so that they can do something about it next time. So Poelo Coelho had a wonderful quote. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. A mistake repeated more than once is a decision. Distractible people, low performers, keep getting distracted by the same damn things again and again. How many times can we say, oh my gosh, I got distracted by Instagram or TikTok? How many times can we say we got distracted by our boss, our kids, or whatever before we say enough? I'm going to do something about it. Because if you're constantly getting distracted by the same thing again and again, you're deciding to be distractible unless you do something about it. So there's no distraction we can't prevent tomorrow if we take action today. So what I want to do for myself more than anyone else was to figure out what's the deeper psychology of distraction so that I could finally overcome it and do the things that I myself said I wanted to do. And Nir, what was the prep work like? I mean, you had an outstanding book called Hooked that came out um, in early 2013, and then this book comes out. What was the prep work? What was the research like in order to get another bestseller on the, on the table? Well, it took me five years to write Indistractable. And the reason why it took me that long was because I kept getting distracted. <laughs> because uh, I, you know, I had this problem of distraction. Uh, there, was, there was one particular moment in my life that made me kind of reassess um, my relationship with distraction in that um, I was with my daughter one afternoon. And I remember we had this book of activities that dads and daughters could do together. You know, there's all kinds of things in this book, you know, uh, have a paper airplane flying contest, things like that. Uh, and one of the activities was to ask each other this question, that if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? 
And I remember that question verbatim, but I can't tell you what my daughter said, because in that moment, for whatever reason, I don't even remember why, I thought it was a good time to just start checking my phone real quick. Let me just look at this one thing for work. And before I knew it, when I looked up from my phone, she was gone because I had sent her a very clear signal that whatever was on my device was more important than she was. And that's when I kind of got this wake up call. Uh, and when I started to look at where else in my life this was happening, it was happening at work. It was happening with my physical health, with my mental health. All these things were getting in the way. And it wasn't that I didn't know what to do, right? Like we all know what to do. Who doesn't know that if you want to be healthy, you have to eat right and exercise. We know who doesn't know that if you want to be great at your job, you have to do the hard work, especially the stuff that other people don't want to do. Who doesn't know that if you want a great relationship, you have to be fully present with people. We know what we don't know is how to get out of our own way. How do we stop getting distracted? So that's that's when I decided if I wanted a superpower, it would be the power to be indistractable. Uh, and so that's when I started exploring this stuff. And the first thing I did, frankly, was you know to read everybody else's books. <laughs> I read everything I could get my hands on in terms of focus and distraction. And uh, most of the books were written by professors who told people to, you know, do digital detoxes and get rid of your smartphones and stop having social media accounts. Nice for a tenured professor to say, but I can't do that. My livelihood depends on me using these technologies. And, and why would I want to give them up? They're wonderful. I connect to people all over the world through these amazing devices. So I knew the solution had could, couldn't be, well, just give up on social media. And in fact, when you look at the history of distraction, it's really interesting that the, 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 the first person to talk about distraction wasn't, you know, since the internet, it was actually Plato, the Greek philosopher, talked about distraction 2,500 years ago. People have been struggling with, with distraction for at least that long. So if the problem has been this been around for this long, it can't be caused by our technologies. There has to be a deeper reason. And so I wanted to find out what that reason really is about. And what I learned was that the, the sources of distraction are much more interesting than these surface level analysis of, oh my gosh, it's the tech companies doing it to us. And much more empowering that actually we can do much more than most people think to allow us ourselves to live according to our values by not getting distracted. You break down the word distraction on traction and distraction. Can you light my listeners on that? Sure, sure. So I, the, the way I kind of started my, my, um, uh, journey into into distraction was to first start with the word. I'm kind of a word nerd. I, I really like it's to understand it's what it's things <laughs> mean before you can really talk about them. So I, I learned that the, um, uh, the 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 opposite of distraction is not what most people think. I thought that the opposite of distraction was focus. Right? You don't want to be distracted. Right? You don't want to be focused. You, uh, sorry, the, that the opposite of distraction was focus. So that most people they don't want to be distracted. They want to be focused. But that's not actually the opposite of the term. The opposite of distraction is not focus, the opposite of distraction is traction. And of course, if you take a step back and you look at the words, this makes complete sense, right? Traction and distraction. Now, both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And you'll notice that both words end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. The opposite of distraction, or sorry, the opposite of traction, distraction is any action that pulls you away from what you said you were going to do, further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So the reason this is so important is that it helps us escape what I think most people fall into, which is moralizing and medicalizing the behavior itself. Okay. They say, oh, video games are bad for you. Social media is bad for you. Watching TV is bad for you, right? Everything's bad for you. Well, I would argue, not necessarily, that if it's what you plan to do with your time and attention, 
enjoy it. Don't feel guilty about it. Play video games, go on social media, do whatever you want. That you, I'm not going to tell you what you should do with your time and attention. That's, that's up to you. What I want you to do is to live your life according to your values and your schedule, not someone else's. So anything you plan to do in advance is traction. If that's what you said you were going to do and you do it, enjoy. Don't feel guilt about it. Now, the real danger of distraction is not what most people think. It's not the video games. It's not social media. The real harmful aspects of distraction come when we think we are doing something that is not a distraction and it tricks us into prioritizing the urgent and the easy tasks at the expense of the hard and important work we have to do to move our lives and careers forward. So for example, for years, I would sit down at my desk and I would get to, you know, I get to work, I sit down at my desk and say, okay, I know I need to work on that big project. That big project, that's what demands my attention right now. I really got to get to work on it. No more procrastination, no more delaying. Here I go, I'm going to get started, but let me check some email, right? Like, let me just do those few things. I'll get started on those, um, you know, those things on my to-do list that are kind of easier to do just to get some momentum. That, that's a work-related task. I'm being productive, right? And what I didn't realize is that distraction was tricking me, right? It was, it, and that's why it's so dangerous because I was thinking, well, I got to check email at some point. What's the big deal? But anything that you did not say you were going to do ahead of time is a distraction, okay? So that's a much more pernicious distraction. So that's why we have to think to ourselves, what is traction? Anything I say I'm going to do ahead of time. What is distraction? Anything that is not that. And that frees us from, from this guilt of doing the things we actually enjoy and also helps us decide in advance how we want to spend our time because you can't say you got distracted if you don't know what you got distracted from. I'll say that again. You can't say you got distracted if you don't know what you got distracted from. So if your calendar is blank, Shut up. You can't say you got distracted. <laughs> like, what did you plan to do? <laughs> everything's, everything's a distraction unless you said in advance what you want to do with your time and your attention. So, so that's why, where this distinction comes from, traction versus distraction. Yeah, I love it. So well said. Uh, a big part of the book is deciding between what's an internal and an external trigger. And to me, this was very new to me because all I thought was external triggers, which you call the dings and the pings and the emails. Can we break that down a little bit? Because I think that was a kind of an aha moment for myself. Absolutely. So we've got traction, we've got distraction. Now we've got these two types of triggers. We've got external triggers and internal triggers. External triggers are what most people think about when they think about distractions. It's the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our outside environment that can lead us towards distraction. Now, those can be a source of distraction. However, studies have found that they only account for 10% of our distractions. 10% of our distractions come from things outside of us. So what are the other 90%? The other 90% of our distractions begin from within. And this was a really big revelation for me because, again, I, I kind of thought, well, you know, the, I'm getting distracted it's because of all this stuff happening outside of me. Uh, you know, the, the phone, the, my kids, uh, the, all, all the stuff happening outside of me. And it turns out that, that I was really not, you know, not delving deep enough that when you look at the psychology of distraction, the reason we don't do what we say we're going to do, by and large, 90% of the time is because of a feeling. It's called an internal trigger. An internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state that we seek to escape. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, anxiety, frustration, uncertainty, these uncomfortable sensations that high performers, what's interesting when I looked at high performers, they actually can use these internal triggers. They all they feel the same thing everybody else does. They feel stress, they feel anxiety. But what's interesting about high performers is that they will take that discomfort and they will use it as rocket fuel to propel them towards traction. Whereas low performers, what I used to do is whenever I felt bored, whenever I felt lonely, whenever I felt tired, whenever I felt anxious, 
I would look for something to take my mind off of that feeling, right? And I would do that with a distraction. And, and the, the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter what you're using to distract yourself. I don't care if it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook. You are always going to find a distraction unless you understand what you are trying to escape from. So the first step to becoming indistractable, the most important step is to master these internal triggers or they will become your master. Yeah, that's awesome. So the high performers, if I'm hearing it correctly, they have it in their mind near that. When I get bored, I'm going to pull out my book. It's just an automatic reflex that they know when this emotion comes, this is what I'm going to do. They have a plan. Is that right? Yeah. And, and they work harder when they feel those sensations. So a lot of times what you hear many times, not always, but many times uh, for high performers, you hear uh, a lot of times a story of trauma, right? You hear about the comedian who uh, was made fun of at school and now they're, you know, they were bullied and now they're going to show people. Uh, you hear about the athlete who was beat up and now they're going to show people. Uh, you know, the, 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 the artist whose uh, father left them as a kid and now they're going to show. So, you know, they use that discomfort. They use that pain to propel them forward. It's interesting, by the way, because some people, when they have trauma, they have post-traumatic stress. We also have post-traumatic growth. And so it's interesting, you know, it can go both ways based on how we interpret what's happened to us. Um, so yeah, so high performers, when they're feeling these uncomfortable sensations, they use it to make them work harder to push them forward, as opposed to what distractible people do, they look for escape, right? They, they take another drink, they turn on the TV, they go scroll something that they didn't intend, they eat something that they later regret. Why? They do that to escape discomfort. So it's really about what mechanism in place, what practice we have uh, to associate when I feel a certain way, what do I do? Do I use that as fuel for traction or do I try and escape it with distraction? I want to go deeper on that. It's a pretty high level of awareness. And this is the mind, the, my fitness podcast. We talk about mindset and fitness, and this is just ringing a bell for me. So go a little bit deeper on that. What, what are some things that people can do? How can people start to access this? Cause to me, near this is some next level thinking. Yeah, absolutely. That, you know, I think that it, it is uh, very applicable for the fitness world because, you know, so many of us, uh, set these goals for us to do one thing or another and, we don't achieve those goals. Well, why? What, what's the number one reason people don't achieve their goals? What's the number one reason? The number one reason people don't achieve their goals is they quit. Okay, pretty simple. You don't achieve your goal because you didn't continue. You didn't persevere. Now, why don't, why don't people persevere? Why do people quit? Well, let's get a little bit more granular. The number one reason we don't do what we say we're going to do is because we don't want to. We don't want to. Why don't we want to? Let's go even a layer deeper. Why don't we want to do or why do we want to do everything we do? Let's, what, let's really get now to the core of what is human motivation. Human motivation, we used to think, is about carrots and sticks, right? That's kind of the old adage that uh, Sigmund Freud called it the pleasure principle. Jeremy Bentham said something similar. Everything we do is about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. What we now know on a neurological basis, and we can literally see this in the brain through fMRI studies, is that human motivation is not about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, but rather it's about one thing. Everything you do, everything you do, is about the desire to escape discomfort from a neurological basis. That even wanting to feel good, okay, even if you say, well, no, I don't do everything I do because I want to escape pain. What, what if I'm pursuing pleasure, all right? Something tastes good, something feels good. That's why I do it, right? Wrong. Neurologically, desire, lusting, craving, 
all these things are psychologically stabilizing the way uh, destabilizing the way the brain gets you to act is because it spurs this bit of discomfort to get you to want that thing in the first place so craving itself is uncomfortable even if it is for a pleasurable sensation so knowing that understanding that the root cause if we really get to the heart of human motivation is all about the desire to escape discomfort that means that time management is pain management weight management is pain management money management is pain management everything is pain management it's all about managing these uncomfortable sensations and if you learn to master these internal triggers if you can truly understand how can i be in control of these sensations what do i do with these uncomfortable urges you are the master of your destiny you can you can do everything you say you're going to do and that and that's really i think a superpower I'd love to hear an example from your life, Nir. Do you have an example of you mastering a um, something inner inside of you that you've experienced in your life? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, I wrote this book for me <laughs> more than anyone else because I was feeling so distracted in my life. Um, so I'll give you an example of a tool. There's dozens of different tools you can use in the book. What, what I wanted to do was to give people uh, arrows in their quiver, right? Tools in their toolbox, ready to go that when you feel this discomfort, you know what to do with it. So there's dozens of different techniques. I'll, I'll give you one that I use almost every single day. And this comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. By the way, everything in my book, you know, I, I hate these uh, personal advice books where it's, you know, they, they uh, uh, a lot of them tend to fall into this category of, well, this is my story, this worked for me, so it'll work for you. I don't like that <laughs> because, you know, what, what, who says that your mileage, you know, will, will be the same as mine. Your mileage may vary on this advice. So what I want to do was to really go deep into the research. So there's over 30 pages of citations to peer reviewed studies. So everything I'm about to tell you, everything in the book, not only did it work for me, the reason it took me five years to write this book is because I went through so many bad techniques. There's so much BS out there in this, in this self-help space. We can talk about some of the BS later on, but, but well, I really wanted to see the research, show me the peer reviewed studies that I can point to to say, yep, this actually does work better than a control. So one of the techniques that I use almost every single day comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. It's been around for decades and it's been very well studied. One of the techniques is called the 10 minute rule. And the 10 minute rule says that you can give in to any distraction in 10 minutes, not for 10 minutes. Okay. Make sure you get that. So one, one time I, I told somebody about this and they said, Oh, I can do it for 10 minutes. And then I just have to quit. No, no, in 10 minutes, in 10 minutes. Why is this technique so powerful? So let me take a little detour here to, to geek out on, on a little bit of psychology. There's a human uh, phenomenon called reactance. Reactance is the tendency that we have to rebel when we are told what to do. So when our freedom is 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 confined, when we are told what to do, we want to do the opposite. So if you've ever been micromanaged by your boss, if you've ever been told what to do by your mom when you were growing up and, and you said, like, don't tell me what to do, that's psychological reactance. Now, here's the crazy thing. You can elicit psychological reactance even on yourself. <laughs> that's how weird the human brain is, that many times if we can find ourselves to say, no, I have to do this or I cannot do that, right? Strict abstinence can oftentimes backfire. So when people tell themselves, I will not eat carbs, or I will, you know, never smoke again, or I will do this or that many times, not always, but that can actually elic elicit psychological reactance. And you want to do the opposite. And if you don't know how to handle that, it makes it worse and worse and worse, because you start ruminating on the fact you can't do that very thing, right? Smoking is a terrific example of this, by the way, nicotine is a stimulant, nicotine is a stimulant. And yet, when you ask smokers, why do you smoke? The number one reason, it relaxes me. That makes no sense. 
Makes no sense. Why does it relax them? Because when they smoke, they free themselves from that reactants of telling themselves not to do something. It's very stressful to say, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke. Okay, fine, I'll smoke, right? That's why it's relaxing. It's not the nicotine. So how, how does this bring back to, to the 10-minute rule? What you're going to do is to tell yourself, okay, when you have that temptation for a distraction, when you have that urge, what you're going to do is to say, okay, I can give into that, to that, right? So in my life, I write every single day. Writing is hard work. You cannot make writing into a habit, right? The definition of a habit is a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. I don't know how to write without thinking. You have to think. It's hard freaking work. When you're in the gym, go, you know, lifting weights, if you want to get better at it, if you want to get stronger, is not a habit. There's no such thing as a gym habit. It is a routine. But it's not a habit because you have to think, you have to do it. If you're not, you're not going to get stronger. So when I have the temptation to quit, right, as we said earlier, the number one cause of not achieving your goal is quitting. When I have that urge, if I'm writing and I say, oh, you know what? This is kind of hard. This is boring. Is anyone going to like this? Uh, you know, is this going to be interesting to people? And all I want to do is go check email or my social media account or do anything but the thing I said I'm going to do. Here's what I do instead. I say, okay, fine. I can check email in 10 minutes. Why do I give myself that that choice? Because now I've I've unlocked, I've I've um, uh, unconstrained myself and so I've I've disarmed that psychological reaction. So I'm I'm a grown man, I can do whatever I want. Yeah, I, yeah, I can check email in 10 minutes, right? But what I have to do for those 10 minutes is either get back to the task at hand, okay? I can continue writing or I can do what's called surf the urge. Surfing the urge acknowledges that these sensations, these cravings, these internal triggers, they're like waves. They crest and then they subside. And so your job is to be a surfer, surfing those emotions. So there's a whole script that you can go through around what you say to yourself while you're surfing the urge. And so I just set a timer for 10 minutes, take a deep breath, and I just check in with myself, right? What's going on? Where is this internal trigger coming from? Is it rational? And there's a certain script, right? You can start telling yourself a healthy perspective to re uh to 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 see that trigger differently as opposed to thinking oh my gosh you know i'm bored does that mean i'm a bad writer does that mean nobody's gonna like this stuff as opposed to wait a minute this is what it feels like to get better at something right i had to learn that 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 discomfort those internal triggers are part of the process of getting better at something of mastering something it's supposed to hurt it's supposed to not be easy all the time that's why it's a rare skill so you have that conversation with yourself as you're surfing the urge and what you will very quickly find is that you will get back to the task at hand and that nine times out of 10, when that alarm rings and the 10 minutes are up, you, you, you forgot about that urge altogether, okay? And over time, what you're doing is you're establishing your agency. You're showing yourself, wait a minute, I did it for 10 minutes. Maybe the 10 minute rule can now become the 12 minute rule, can become the 15 minute rule. And you're proving to yourself, wait a minute, I can resist these temptations. I don't have to give in to every little feeling that I have. You know, I don't have to, I don't have to believe everything I think or everything I feel, I can wait a few minutes before uh, allowing myself to give in. And so that's how you're building your agency over time. Yeah. It's like a muscle you're continuing to flex. I love it. I think I've, I've heard of this phenomenon too of like, you know, big purchases, right? Like wait a day until you have a, a grand purchase and then see if the fire is still in your belly. I think that's kind of the similar thing you're saying here, but maybe it's, maybe it's just 10 minutes and watch your kind of motivation, maybe drop a little bit. So maybe you're like really craving this cookie right now or whatever it is. And nine times out of 10, you just wait a little bit and it's going to drop and subside. It sounds kind of crazy. That's only 10 minutes, but it does work. I can say from, a, from personal experience, it does work. 
Definitely does. Yeah, absolutely. And it does work. It works. Uh, there's been studies that show that this works, of course, with dieting. It works with smoking. Uh, it works with all kinds of things that people think, oh, it controls my brain. I can't, I can't not give in. Actually, you, you know, you, you can't resist. You just, like you said, you have to train that just like any skill. Mm -hmm. I love the idea of the surfing. Very cool imagery. Um, another piece I really liked in your book and it was in the same chapter was you were talking about the study of the flight attendants and smoking and how, yeah. and, um, you know, they, they didn't even get the craving until they were close to landing or they finally landed. And some of this relates to with, a lot with me near, because I feel it in workouts, right? To me, I could hold a specific pace on a bike for 20 minutes, but for some reason, minutes 18, 19 and 20 are the hardest. I don't know why I held the same pace the whole time. Why am I hurting now? And I think a lot of it is psychological. You're almost done. It's supposed to be hard the last couple minutes, whatever it may be. Tell me a little bit about for the listeners that haven't read the book, what's the study for the flight attendants and why is it so hard to hold out for the last little bit? Yeah, it's interesting. So the, the study uh, was with two groups of flight attendants who both smoked and one group of flight attendants had a flight from Tel Aviv, Israel to New York. Okay. And that's about an eight hour flight. The other group of flight attendants who were smokers went from Tel Aviv to London, to the UK. And that's about a three hour flight. And they asked these flight attendants to uh, mark down their level of cigarette cravings every 30 minutes. And what they expected to find, if the theory is that nicotine, as it's processed in the body, uh, as you kind of run out of nicotine in your body, then you crave it more. That's kind of the popular notion of you need another hit of nicotine, for example. Then you would expect that after the same amount of time had, had elapsed, both groups of flight attendants would feel the same amount of craving. So let's say after an hour, oh, that's when they were really jonesing for a cigarette. That's not what happened. What happened was that they experienced the highest level of craving, not after a certain amount of time elapsed, but rather when there was a certain amount of time left before they could smoke. So when the flight attendants who went to, to London felt the highest cravings was 30 minutes before landing. Meanwhile, the flight attendants who were going to New York were high over the Atlantic Ocean. They experienced almost no cravings. When they did experience cravings was when those flight attendants were 30 minutes until landing. Why? Because that's when you have the option. That's when you have that, that opportunity, you know, get off the plane quick so I can have my cigarette. It wasn't the, what was happening in the body. It was the fact that it was how much time left until I could give in to that distraction. Uh, and so, so that was, a, I think, a very interesting study that, that it showed that it's, it's not the nicotine itself per se. I mean, of course, nicotine does have a, 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 an effect on the body. You can feel the effect of nicotine, but really what it is, it's about this, this uh, time elapse until I can give into that distraction. It's kind of like going on a long road trip and you don't pee the whole time. And then you're 20 minutes away from your destination and you're like, I got to pee now. It's like, why now, dude, we're almost there. <laughs> yeah. 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 But it's, cool. it's interesting though. So I think it illustrates once again, the importance of, of knowing that it's, these are just feelings, right? When you can, when the, the more we can detach ourselves from feeling that, that or thinking or believing that we are not in control, that there's something controlling us, that's very dangerous territory. Uh, that and, and this is, by the way, very popular today in the popular media that that kind of tells us uh, that social media is hijacking our brains, that you're powerless to resist, that, you know, you if you, you know, we see this a lot with with um, over medicalization, that we love to give labels to everything. I hear this all the time. Oh, I, I can't do that. I, I'm a Sagittarius. I can't do that. I'm a morning person. I can't do that. I'm a this and that. And look, sometimes it's legitimate. Right. Sometimes if you have a certain diagnosis, uh, a certain condition, of course, there, there are exceptions. But the amount of people who label themselves as one thing or another 
as incapable of doing something because of, uh, uh, you know, whatever, something as silly as I'm, I'm a, a Sagittarius or I'm a morning or not a morning person or whatever. It's so self-limiting, which is why the title of my book is Indistractable. Indistractable is supposed to sound like indestructible because I wanted that to be people's new identity, right? I want, and I got this from the psychology of religion. There's a lot of really interesting research around how when you call yourself a moniker, when you have a noun to describe yourself, right? I am a this, you become much more likely to perform in accordance with those values and attributes. So for example, uh, a vegetarian doesn't wake up in the morning and say, ooh, I wonder if I should have a bacon sandwich, right? A vegetarian does not eat meat. It is who they are. It's yeah. part of their identity. So when you call yourself something, it can either help you or hurt you. If you call yourself and say, I'm not a morning person, that's just who I am, right? I need my cup of coffee before I can talk to you. Well, yeah, okay, <laughs> because you believe that. Uh, if, if somebody says, I'm no good at time management. Well, yeah, because if you believe you're no good at time management, you won't be, right? As Henry Ford said, whether you believe you can or you can't, you're right. So on one in one respect, having those labels can be very harmful, but if we assign the right labels, the right identity can be very helpful. So if you say, I am indistractable, that is who I am, right? It's part of my identity. It becomes much easier to live up to those goals. I'm sure you feel this when you say, I'm an athlete, right? What does an athlete do? An athlete does this, this, and this. That is who I am. I love that. It's a pretty uh, common theme on this podcast is that the most powerful story in the world is the story you tell yourself and saying, I'm the type of person that sleeps eight hours a night. You start saying that out loud and even not, not only to yourself, but near you start saying that to your friends and they're, they start associating you with that. They're like, oh, DJ is the one that sleeps eight hours of sleep. Like obviously he's going home at, at nine o'clock. So it starts to kind of have this ruminating effect, not only yourself, but the people around you. And it sticks and becomes that much more a part of your identity. It's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. So well said. In fact, a lot of the research around psychology of religion that I dove into was about the power of proselytizing. That, you know, what, why does every major religion have as part of its mission or part of its edict to convert others, right? Every religion has that to some respect. We have to, you know, we have to enlarge the flock. Well, part of that mission to proselytize has to do with, of course, increasing the number of people who believe like you do. But a big part of it, I would say the hidden reason that that happens is because when you tell other people about what you are, it solidifies your own identity, right? It's like that joke, how do you know someone is into keto? Don't worry, they'll tell you. <laughs> they'll tell you. Right? They'll tell you. Right? So you can substitute anything, by the way. You can substitute, how do you know somebody's a vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you. Like, it's because it's who they are. So telling people that you are a certain identity, telling people you are indistractable, it, it becomes part of who you are. It makes it more likely, not only will you, I think, spread the gospel of, of how we can all become indistractable, which I think is a good thing. It also solidifies your own identity to, to perform as well. Cool. In uh, the next chapter, you say, make time for traction. So we talk about establishing core values and being a scheduler, not a to-doer. Can we open that book a little bit? Absolutely. So uh, this, so step number one to becoming indistractable is uh, mastering internal triggers. The second step is to make time for traction. So we talked about the difference between traction and distraction. Traction is any action that moves you closer to your values, helps you become the kind of person you want to become. So in order to do that, we have to plan our time. That uh, and this is something a message a lot of folks don't like to hear because they say, "Oh, I want to be spontaneous, right? I want, I want to, I, I, I need uh, flexibility." Well, that's great if you're retired or a child, but if you want to perform your best, you have to plan your day. 
And a big part of this is that we have to learn how to plan our day properly. We have to use what's called time boxing. And this uses a psychological technique called uh, making an implementation intention, which is just a fancy way of saying planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. And it turns out that this technique has been studied in thousands of peer-reviewed studies. Uh, very, very effective. It's just a matter of saying in advance how you will spend your time. But many people have trouble getting started because they, they don't know where to begin. So what I try and give people is a framework of, th of thinking through this, starting with your values. Uh, what are values? Values are defined as attributes of the person you want to become. Values are defined as attributes of the person you want to become. So ask yourself, what are your values? And the way to do this is to think about three life domains, as I call them, starting with you. You are at the center of your three life domains. If you can't take care of yourself, can't take care of other people, can't make the world a better place. So how would the person you want to become spend time taking care of themselves? Okay. What might that include? We all know, we've all read the, the literature around how important sleep is, but do we have a bedtime? Right. I, I used to tell my daughter all the time, you have to go to sleep at a certain time. Sleep is very important. You have to have a bedtime. But I was a damn hypocrite because I didn't have a bedtime. So now I do have a bedtime. It's in my calendar. Uh, if, if physical exercise is important to you, I'm not saying it has to be, right? You have to live according to your values. But if you say, you know, when you ask people what's important to you, oh, my health, very, very important health above all things. Well, but do you have time in your calendar for your health or are you just talking a good game? So planning that workout, planning the walk, planning whatever it is that you need to do to take care of yourself. Fun, right? I want you to put in time for video games. If part of your values include playing video games, put in your calendar. If it's social media or watching Netflix, awesome. Do it. Put it in your calendar. If that's what the person you want to become would, would spend their time doing, I want you to put that time in. Okay, so that's the first domain. The second domain is the relationship domain. And relationships must be planned for as well. That we, we've seen this crisis of loneliness in the industrialized world. And this isn't something new. This didn't happen just with social media. Uh, Robert Putnam wrote about this in his book, Bowling Alone, back in the 1990s, that what we found is as, as American society became more secular, the rituals that we used to have around getting together with people, right? Going to church or synagogue or whatever mosque or having those regular occasions or even going to the bowling league, right? On, on every Thursday night, those rituals, those uh, routines have disappeared and it's to our detriment. This is why we have a loneliness epidemic in our country. And we know that loneliness is as detrimental to your health as smoking and obesity. Think about that, right? We talk all the time about smoking is dangerous, obesity is dangerous. Loneliness is also quite dangerous. And the reason this has happened is that we don't have those regular interactions with the people who we love and who we care about and who care about and love us. So I think we have to put that in our calendars, whether it's your significant other, whether it's your kids, whether it's your siblings, whether it's your parents, whether it's your buddies, put it in your calendar. So one thing I do, so I have three really close friends that I grew up with that uh, we, you know, for years we would, uh, it's been too long, we should catch up, let, let's get together. It didn't happen because everybody has these busy lives and now they're distributed all over the world. So what do we do now? I called up my buddy, Travis, and I said, hey, Travis, look, uh, this is something that's important to you, to me. Is it important to you? He said, yes, I really would love to, to, to catch up regularly. So now every third Tuesday, 7 p.m., it's on the calendar forever until we die. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like it's in the calendar. We don't have to go back and forth with this scheduling ping pong. This is somebody who, who I really care about uh, and I want to maintain this relationship. So it's in the schedule it can be for, you know, anything that's important to you, anything that maintains these social relationships. It's very, very important to put in your schedule and make it as important as having a, a meeting with, with someone who's super important, right? If, if Bill Gates or Oprah wanted to have a lunch with you, you'd make sure you'd make time, right? 
Well, making time for yourself, making time for the important people in your life is just as important. Uh, maybe much more, much more important actually than meeting with some celebrity. And then finally, the work domain. And so that this is the last domain that we want to plan out for. Uh, and work falls into two categories. We have what we call reactive work and reflective work. Reactive work is a kind of work we do uh, in response to demands, right? It's uh, emails, it's phone calls, it's meetings, it's reacting to what people are demanding of us. And that's part of everybody's job. But what most people do is that they make no time for what's called reflective work. Reflective work is the kind of work that can only be done without distraction. Planning, being creative, strategizing, thinking for God's sakes can only happen without distraction. Problem is low performers, they get very comfortable just doing reactive work and they, and they complain about it, right? They say, Oh, I, I don't have any time to, to think because my boss wants this and my, you know, the emails and the this and the that. But in fact, they are very comfortable being told what to do all day because they don't want to have to think through what's important. Thinking is hard work. So what I advise is you have to have at least some time in your day. It could be 15 minutes. That's fine. Some time in your day for reflective work, for that time that you work without distraction so that you can make sure that you're working on the right things. Because if you don't, you're going to run real fast in the wrong direction. So you've got to put some time in your day for that reflective work. So now when you fill your calendar with time based on your values for you, your relationships, and finally your work, now you have a completely filled out weekly calendar that after you do this once, it maybe takes maybe 30 minutes to do the first time. Week after week, now it maybe only takes five, 10 minutes and you're making small adjustments. And the idea here is that once you have that time box calendar, you're going to follow that time box calendar uh, and then make adjustments for the next day. You never make adjustments in the day. You make adjustments for the next day. And if you get off track, you just get back to whatever it is on your calendar. Now, one more thing I want to say is that to-do lists, by the way, uh, the way most people use to-do lists is one of the worst things you can do for your personal productivity. Because to-do lists are all about finishing tasks, right? Cute little boxes that people check off. And this has many deleterious consequences. A, a big part of it is that there's no feedback loop. You don't know how long things take you. So the goal of a time box calendar is to not finish anything. What the, what's this guy talking about? What do you mean not finish anything? The goal is to not finish anything. Why do I say that? The goal with using a time box calendar is to work on whatever it is that you said you were going to work on for as long as you said you would without distraction. That's the only goal, not about finishing. It's about working on whatever it is you said you were going to work on for as long as you said you would without distraction. Why is this so powerful? It turns out research finds that people who use this method are actually more productive. They actually get more done than the people who measure themselves by how many cute little boxes they checked off. Why? Because when you have a big task, you say, oh, I got to finish that presentation. I got to go do this. I got to do that. That has no feedback mechanism for how long it actually took you. So people who use the to-do list methodology, they work on something for five minutes. They say, oh, this is kind of boring. Let me just check this thing. Let me just do that thing. And they have no idea how long the task actually took. Whereas someone who uses a time box calendar can say, okay, I did this for 20 minutes and I got about 10% of the way. So that means I need 10 more time boxes like this to finish this task approximately. So they actually know how productive they can be. You know, on average, a person will take three times longer to finish a task than they estimate. And part of the reason is because they, they don't know how long something really takes them. So time, box, time boxing cures that problem uh, and is way, way better than the to-do list methodology. Yeah, I recently, you've probably heard of this term, but I've recently learned Parkinson's law. Have you heard of Parkinson's law? 
yeah you know, the things says, however long and the time thing. you give them yeah which is kind of what you're saying right if you're going to say you know uh, i have two hours to work out your workout's going to take two hours long you're going to fill the space so if i'm hearing you correctly near what you're saying is basically that the constraints can actually give you freedom maybe in the long run giving yourself some some constraints in your schedule can help you be more productive and maybe even work faster absolutely that constraints are essential right why, why do kids play in a sandbox it's a constraint you know if you ask an artist what's the worst part of of being an artist it's the blank canvas uh if you ask a writer what's the hardest part about writing it's staring at the blank page constraints actually make us better they make us more creative and they make tasks more fun uh so yeah you absolutely want to add these constraints and so the easiest constraint to add is time because now it can become something almost like a game. It's something you can play to say, okay, how much can I do in this period, in this period of time? How, how many reps can I, can I, uh, uh successfully complete? Uh, how, how much can I write? And, and sometimes, you know, it's actually better to make that time very, very small. Right. You can say, I'm just going to do this for 15 minutes. You can do anything for 15 minutes, right? So I'm going to work on this for 15 minutes and I'm going to see how far I get. And by doing that, as opposed to having a mile long to-do list of all the little things you need to accomplish in your day, by doing that, you're actually teaching yourself, oh, okay, now I get it. It's 15 minutes of time input gives me this much output. So a common mistake could be first that the constraints actually tie you down, but actually it's the discipline that gives you that gives you ultimate ultimate freedom. That's that's absolutely right. Yeah, well said. Awesome. Next part is about hack back external triggers. Talk to me about that. Sure. So the third step to becoming indistractable is hacking back external triggers. And I, I use the term hack because uh, to hack something means to gain unauthorized access. So if you think about it, someone hacks into your uh, bank account, right? They're, they're, they're gaining unauthorized access to it. So in many ways, these external triggers are hacking your attention. So when it comes to the pings, dings, and rings in your outside environment, these things do hack your attention. You know, you're, you're in a meeting and now your phone rang. Uh, it has hacked your attention to direct your attention towards something you didn't intend. Uh, we, we should know this, right? We, we know that every media company out there is looking to hack your attention. I don't care if it's social media or uh, the newspaper or Fox News. They're all monetizing your attention and turning it into money. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, we're glad to have these, these media companies. The, the, we just have to learn how to hack back that we are not victims here we can hack back how do you hack back some very simple things you can do right of course you can change the notification settings on your phone that's that's kindergarten stuff uh but but you, you also need to think about all the other ways that your attention is being hacked by external triggers what about pointless meetings that you didn't need to attend what about emails what about your kids your kids can be a distraction right they can be external triggers as well so we go through systematically i think it's eight different type of external triggers from meetings to your boss to all kinds of things that can happen in your outside environment and how you can systematically hack back each and every one of those you found one that's been most successful or impactful for your you in your life um so you know that a lot of times people say okay well the, the remedy to distraction is just you know fix your phone do something on your phone that i think it's kind of cheap like it's kind of kindergarten stuff even though only two-thirds of people sorry two-thirds of people never adjust their notification settings which is crazy to me right like we complain about these that's crazy i mean it takes you five minutes so i don't tend to focus on that because it's kind of been overdone i don't think it's that hard i devote like one page to it basically the the external triggers i think are more important you know in a in a corporate setting I think meetings are a big one. Uh, I think because so many people are working remotely, it's become so easy to call a meeting uh, that we do it too much. 
we just call too many stupid meetings. And so there's a whole section in there about how to hack back uh, these distractions that come from too many meetings or pointless meetings. And it's about adding friction to them. For example, if you're going to call a meeting, you have to have an agenda. You know, I learned that in student council in high school, right? <laughs> like no, no agenda, no meeting. Uh, having a briefing document, uh, knowing that that brainstorming should not be done in groups. Brainstorming should be done. Studies have found the best, the the, the optimal number of people to brainstorm is two. Any more than that, you get you know the loudest person in the room dominates a conversation. So understanding how to minimize these distractions that come from you know useless time spent. Uh, way too many meetings today are spent people who didn't want to do their homework and who want to just talk about the problem. Let's talk it out. No, <laughs> it could have been an email. Uh, so that's very, very important. I think uh, as many people are working from home as, as I have for, for many years, um, distractions that come from kids. Uh, you know, I, I, um, uh, in, in my household, uh, when, when my daughter was just six years old, uh, we uh, adopted this method that we call the concentration crown. So we bought this this like light up wreath thing that my wife wears. Uh, I have a silly hat that I wear, and this is called a concentration crown. So that you know what we were finding is that my daughter would interrupt us as we were trying to get work done because we were working from home, uh, and she didn't know when we were when we could be distracted or when we could be interrupted or not because you know to a kid typing on your computer looks the same whether it's important work or you know putzing around on YouTube or something. Uh, and so having that concentration crown, so we told her, look, when mommy or daddy are wearing the concentration crown, that means that we need at least 30 minutes. Okay. And we'll be, if, if so the rule in my household is if you're bleeding, you can interrupt us, but short of bleeding, there's no reason to interrupt us. Go play with something, do something else. You don't need to interrupt us. Uh, and so, but, but, but to her credit, she didn't know. So now when we wear the concentration crown works like a charm, it also works really well with spouses too. So when I see my wife wearing the concentration crown, I know, okay, she, she can't be distracted right now. So that's been a pretty good way to hack back too. Yeah. What are your thoughts on, let's say you're, you're writing and you're writing an article and you do get distracted by something, some ping ding, something that's going on. Do you have a, a strategy, a mindset tip, just something to when you realize it, you're doing it. Maybe you're scrolling TikTok for a couple of minutes and then you put it down and you're now you're coming back to where you were. Any sort of transitional type strategies you can think about on getting back into flow? Yeah. So what I would recommend is to start tracking these distractions. So if it's, you know, so I keep a, a, a pen and uh, a post-it note right here at my desk. And when I find that I get distracted, uh, if that if it happens, which it does, invariably it happens, you want to make sure you write down what was that internal trigger. So what was the thing that you felt before you checked TikTok? Was it boredom? Was it fatigue? Was it loneliness? Was it uncertainty? So if you can just do that, right? Just write down uh, boredom, okay? And then, and then get back to the task at hand as, as quickly as possible. Then later on, when you have some reflective time in your calendar, which we all should, you can sit down and say, okay, I started checking TikTok when I was feeling bored working on a big project. What can I do next time to prevent that? Mm -hmm. So we talked about three of the steps. There's still a fourth. The, the first step is mastering the internal trigger. So how could I deal with boredom in a healthier way? So maybe next time it's going to be the 10 minute rule, for example, that we talked about earlier. Then making sure that we make time for traction. Uh, so did I plan that time appropriately? Like, was I, uh, did I, did I uh, go over time and now the task got boring for me? So maybe I need to make the time a little shorter next time. So it's still engaging. Could be something you could do next time. Did I hack back the external trigger? Why was my phone near me while I was trying to do work? And certainly why weren't the notifications turned off, right? You can turn that off with a quick flip of a switch, uh, or planning it in your, you know, you, with my, when I use my Mac, 
I have do not disturb on my Mac always on, right? So it's always on do not disturb on my Mac. On my phone, it, it automatically now will switch for me when I'm, when I have work time in my calendar. Uh, so, so that should happen automatically. You shouldn't have those pings and dings at all, uh, while you're trying to do focused work. And then finally, the last step that we didn't talk about is preventing distraction with pacts. A pact is what's called a pre-commitment device. It's when we say in advance, uh, what we're going to do if we get distracted, it keeps us in. And so there's three types of pacts. We have what we call an effort pact when we make the behavior we don't want to do more difficult. We have what we call a price pact when there's some kind of economic disincentive. And then we have an identity pact, which we talked about a little bit earlier when you have a moniker that you call yourself. So for example, if, oh, you know what? I was writing and then I started checking TikTok. I might ask myself, okay, I've done the first three. What's something I can do? What's some kind of pact I can make? What's some kind of disincentive that I could I could institute to make sure that I don't do the thing I didn't want to do? Um, so for for example, uh, I have in my closet, uh, and there's a picture of this in the book as well. In my closet, I have a calendar. And uh, on this calendar, I have taped a $100 bill. Okay. And above this calendar on the shelf, right above it, there's a Bic lighter. And this is called the burn or burn technique. The burn or burn technique says that I can either go burn some calories. I can go to the gym. I can do some pushups. I can do something six days a week, or I have to burn the hundred dollar bill. Mm-hmm. I can't give it away. I can't spend it. I have to burn the hundred dollar bill. So that's an example of a price pact. If I didn't do this thing I said I was going to do, there's going to be some kind of economic consequence. Now, I've used this technique for what, over four years now. I'm in the best shape of my life at 44 years old. I've never been fitter and I've never burned the money. You know why? Because I'll do some freaking push-ups, <laughs> right? Like I'll go for a little walk. I'll do, I'll go to the gym. Now I actually don't even need this calendar anymore, but it's an example of a price pack. So let me ask you, if, if I put a gun to your head or if I said, hey, DJ, if you check TikTok, uh, you're going to have to pay me $10,000. You're going to check TikTok? There's no way. (laughs) (laughs) No way. So, so there's another technique that I really like. So part of this pact is, is having a, a a focus mate. And there's actually a company called focus mate that I like so much that I invested in the company. And this is, this is a great tool, especially uh, if you're the kind of person like me that has trouble getting started in the morning. Uh, So what focus mate is, it's kind of like chat roulette. I don't know if you remember chat roulette, but without all the, without without all the dirty stuff. Uh, So the way, the way Focusmate works is you you go to the site, you book a time on the schedule when you want to do focus work, and you are connected with another person who has the same objective. They also want to do focus work for that period of time. And you you see each other just like where you look at each other now and say, hey, you know, I'm near, I'm working on this and this project. Okay, I'm doing this. It takes you 30 seconds to do a quick introduction and then go. Wow. And just having that other person working somewhere, they don't see what you're working on, but just knowing that, hey, that other person is busy, you know, doing focus work as am I is enough of a pact, enough of a promise to, to remind you not to pick up uh, your device. Another, I'll give you one more pact you can use. Um, and so this is, this is actually, I should have mentioned this first because it's perfect for what you're looking for. There's an app called Forest. And Forest, the way it works is uh, when you want to do focused work, you dial in how much time you want to do focused work for. So let's say, hey, I want to work on this project for 30 minutes. Then on your screen, you see this cute little tree, right? This cute little tree. If you pick up the phone and do anything with it, if you want to check TikTok, the little virtual tree gets chopped down and you don't want to be a virtual tree murderer. <laughs> so it's just a little, a little bit of a reminder. Nope. You promised yourself you weren't going to check your phone. And that I promise you, if you use those four techniques together, 
master internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers, and then use this packed, you, you won't have this problem anymore. This is great. There's one more that we missed. You talked about, and I'm, I'm all into mindset. So I want to get into the reimagining, reimagining, um, uh, the scenarios. Talk to me a little bit about that. If that rings a bell for you, how can we reimagine some of the distractions to make them more fun, to make them for engaging? Walk me through that. Right. So we talked a little bit about reimagining the trigger, how you can see the emotion differently, which is very important. I'll, I'll give you a quick example. Um, so uh, I used to get terrible stage fright. And that is not a good thing if you're a professional speaker. <laughs> so, and, I, and, and why did I get stage fright? Because uh, I had a narrative around an internal trigger. So every time I felt this uncomfortable sensation of you know, better uh, butterflies in my stomach and, uh, you know, my, my pits would get sweaty and, uh, I'd get a bit of a headache right before I was going to go on stage. The narrative I was telling myself was maybe I'm a fraud. Maybe I'm no good at this. Like if I was a real public speaker, I wouldn't be feeling these things. And so I would ruminate on the feelings because I had assigned a story that didn't serve me because it would make me more nervous before I would get on stage. Now I reimagine the trigger. I see the trigger as something different. So now when I'm about to get on stage, I still feel the same physiological response. My heart starts beating. I still get butterflies in the stomach and my pits still get sweaty. But now I've reimagined the narrative. I've reimagined those triggers. So now when I feel those reactions, I say, oh, you know what? This is what happens so that my body can prepare to give its best performance, right? This is what my heart is beating quickly so that I can get more oxygen to my brain so I can say the right things on stage. So I've reimagined the narrative and we can do this for all sorts of internal triggers. So when a task is difficult, when we feel bored, when we feel stressed, when we feel anxious, one of the things I repeat to myself several times a day is this is what it feels like to get better. Mm. As opposed to what I used to say, was don't feel that, ignore that, or, you know, th don't be a wuss or, you know, like be toughen up. No, this is what it feels like to get better, right? Just like when you work out, if you don't feel that pump, if you don't feel the burn, if you don't feel a bit of discomfort telling you stop, then you're not pushing beyond your limits. You're not going to get better. So telling yourself, this is what it feels like to get better. That's part of reimagining these internal triggers so that we can, again, use them as rocket fuel to push us towards traction rather than saying, Ooh, this is uncomfortable. Let me escape it with distraction. Powerful tool. Nir, you're on a roll. This is great stuff, man. Um, the, the book is phenomenal. Indistractable, how to control your attention and choose your life. Where can people buy it and what else can I point them towards? Absolutely. So it's available wherever books are sold. It's in uh, Audible. It's on uh, uh, you know hardcover, Kindle edition, whatever, whichever you prefer. Uh, and a quick offer for, for folks. Um, so we put a um, this workbook uh, was 80 pages that we couldn't fit into the final edition of the book because it got too big. Mm -hmm. So we actually put it on my website at indistractable.com. That's spelled I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E, indistractable.com. It's complimentary, 80-page workbook. Check that out. And my website, if you want more to learn more about me and follow my writing, it's nearandfar.com. It's spelled like my first name, N-I-R and far.com, nearandfar.com. Cool, man. Yeah, I had a chance to look through that today. You got some really great articles. Um, thanks for taking the time. This is really fun. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me.